Hey, I told you last week, one of the things we're going to do each week is we're going to pray for uh, the Unreached People Group of the Day per the Joshua Project. So here's what I want to do before we dive into the Word tonight. I just want to ask that you as a table would join together in prayer if one person would uh, be willing to, to uh, express prayer out loud. Today's Unreached People Group of the Day uh, is the Bengali People Group, but specifically the Bengali uh, People Group as located in the country of Finland. Is, is who we're praying for today, the Bengali of Finland. Uh, globally, there are 1,883,900 Bengali. Uh, there are 1,500 living in the nation of Finland. Most are refugees. There is not a single known believer among any of them in the nation of Finland. And so uh, one of the challenges is as they come to Finland, obviously they as a people group uh, have strong ties, and they want to retain their, both their ethnic identity and religion, which would be uh, for, um, uh, for them, I, I believe if I'm correct here, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not going to, um, is going to be either Hindu or Muslim, depending there. So let me give you the prayer focuses. Uh, one is to pray that for the Bengali of Finland, that the Lord would, be, would move remove the spiritual blindness of their eyes, and they would begin to see and grasp and yearn for the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, So that'd be one side of the prayer. The other side of the prayer is that God would raise up, says pray for laborers to be raised up and sent out. Pray that God would raise up and give wisdom to our brothers and sisters in Finland to know how to reach out to these individuals from the Bengali people group, um, that they would and that in doing that, um, it's as is frequent, especially with Muslim people groups, uh, the Holy Spirit does is definitely still in the business of doing real signs and wonders, but it is, as in Scripture, tied to the proclamation of the gospel, not tied to the uh, impressive uh, idolatry of Western people who want to treat the Holy Spirit like he's the force from Star Wars. So, do pray that the Holy Spirit would, would work in such ways to, uh, to awaken the Bengali to Christ. So simply pray, as, as you pray for the Bengali in Finland, pray for our brothers and sisters to be raised up and have wisdom to know how to reach them. Pray that among the Bengali, their eyes would be open to the truth and that the Holy Spirit would do what work needs to be done for them to be responsive, whatever that may be. So if you'll just pray, someone will uh, agree to pray at your table. And then as I hear it, Wayne, I will, I will pray, uh, pray us out of that time and into... Uh, the time of our uh, study of Scripture. Father, we, we uh, Lord, as I think, Lord, what an interesting um, just spotlight to pray for a people group, but specifically a people group and, and those who are living as refugees. We know from your word, Jesus, that uh, you are over the, the appointment and the boundaries of all peoples and nations. I know you are over, it says in Acts 17, the movement of peoples. And so, uh, Father, as, as this group of individuals uh, from the Bengali people group finds themselves in Finland, Lord, we do just ask. We ask. We already know our brothers and sisters in Finland, they face a hard, an even harder, harsher culture than what we face in our country. Lord, as they, as they seek to be faithful to you at your word, may they know your strength and may their eyes not grow inward, but may their eyes stay outward, upward on you and outward to see, Lord, to see those like the Bengali living in their midst who do not know you, who have not heard, 
So Lord, would you raise up our brothers and sisters? Would you raise up sister churches in Finland to reach the Bengali? Give them wisdom to know what to do and how to do it. And fill them with boldness to speak your word clearly and give them open doors. And Lord, for the Bengali people, we just pray, you know how the enemy has blinded their heart. You know how they are um, enslaved to the, the deadness of their religion and uh, the things that go with it. Holy Spirit, whatever is necessary to break through that veil, for them to recognize the emptiness of their false religion, we ask in Jesus' name that you would do that work. And that as you do that work, and as you raise up the church, that those as only you can, you would bring them together in an open door. And Lord, we pray that there would be men and women, boys and girls from the Bengali people group whom, whom you save as they cry out for salvation and whom one day, Lord, we look forward to standing alongside and worshiping you within eternity. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, we are going to keep walking through Revelation. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Revelation 8. And I just, again, proviso, there, there is, especially as we move further and further into the book and we get into the, the wild and crazy, there is so much opportunity that we could just, we could, we, could, we could take the next, you know, 52 to 104 weeks to do it. And, and I just, I don't want to disappoint you, but that's not, that's not what the Lord stirred on my heart to do. So we're going to try to move it a little bit quicker pace that, that are natural based on kind of what's there. And uh, we'll get as far as we can get. I will tell you this, uh, as soon as uh, we, as soon as Bethany goes into labor, there's a plan in place for what's going to go down at the church. And part of that plan will be, uh, you'll be McGinty will teach you for a couple Wednesday nights. Uh, and so there'll be a pause in Revelation and then we'll come back and finish it up. But here we go. Revelation chapter eight, picking up at, at verse one, it says, remember we've, we've been in the seal, the seal judgments. Jesus has been breaking the seals, and it says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels, and notice the definite article, it's not just any seven angels, these are seven specific angels. If you really want to go down the rabbit hole, and in, in Jewish literature, they even give names to these seven angels. We're not going to chase that rabbit hole tonight, just because it's not there in the text, but it, it, what is clear, it's not just seven angels. It's not just seven random old angels picked out of a group. These are seven specific angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Then another angel, an eighth angel, uh, like them, came and, and stood at the altar, uh, holding a, a golden censer, and, and much incense was given to him, that, it might, that he might add it to the prayers of the saints, which are on the golden altar before the throne." And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now let's pause for a second. So here's what you've got. We've just had the scene in, in chapter 7 of the multitude without number who've come out of the great tribulation of every tongue and tribe, this, this group of, of mass, uh, mass uh, salvation who, who've come to faith in Christ during the seven years of tribulation. And, 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 and that's an, really an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh. So here Jesus breaks the seventh and, and final seal on that great scroll that we saw several chapters back. And when he breaks that seal, there is silence for half an hour. Now, uh, if you get really deep into it all, one of the questions, well, well, why is it silent? And some will say, well, it was silent to allow time for the prayers of the saints uh, that you see in the next verses to come up before God. And that's a strong possibility. It's, it's also very possible it was silent uh, in the sense of there was awe and wonder, which is also biblically true. Uh, listen to the Old Testament. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in His present. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. There's even implication that there's silence before the end of times. Let all people be silent before the Lord. So it's possible that the silence may just simply be 
the awe and wonder, the breathtaking awe and wonder of those in heaven seeing the Lamb who's taken this scroll that no one else could open, and He's opened it, and there's just the awe of silence. It's, it's possible one of those, both of those. The point of the matter is, there is a break, an interlude in the noise of heaven for half an hour, either literally 30 minutes or just a relatively short period of time. Uh, either is adequate. And, and, and then when he sees in this silence, there's seven angels that have seven trumpets. And so the breaking of the seventh seal leads to all of a sudden the introduction of seven angels with seven trumpets. And, and before the trumpet is, is blared, we, we see this exchange where another angel comes in and there's an altar before God. And on that altar, the angel adds adds incense smoke to the smoke that's already going up, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. And we've already seen a little bit of this. If you rewind back to chapter 5, there's those who were killed during the tribulation whose prayers for justice are coming up. How long, O Lord, will it be until you bring? And so here we see a, 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 there, there's, there, there is... Um, there's a lot to be noticed, and we'll try to come back at the end and make application there, but, but notice the prayers of the saints like incense before God, like a, a beautiful, um, the delight that you may take from lighting something that has a good scent in your home, so God delights in the prayers of His people coming up to Him. Not only does God delight in the prayers of His people, we also find that the prayers of God's people stir God to action. These undoubtedly, these prayers of the saints that are coming up in the context of what we've seen, they're undoubtedly prayers for, for justice, prayers for God's righteous judgment to come upon wickedness. It is the prayers of the saints that move a mighty, holy, just God to act. So the prayers go up, and out of these prayers, God acts in giving the angel authority. The angel flings fire from the altar down to the earth, and, and, and there's uh, meteorological phenomena that, that come. It just simply means there's some crazy weather that starts taking place on the earth. And then the seven angels, in response to what the scene in heaven, prepare to blare the trumpets. Now the first sounded, verse 7, and there came hail, fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a great mountain uh, burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which are in the sea had, and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell upon a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, which is an uh, Old Testament term that, that simply refers to something which is bitter. And a third of the waters became Woodward, and the men, many men died from the waters because they were made bitter." The fourth angel sounded, and a, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because the remaining blast of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. So the, the, the angels proceed to sound their trumpets. And, and with each of what we've read, I, I will give you this. If you do enough digging, you're going to find a multitude of opinions that range from every last word of what's described is literal to a T to a position where it's literal, but there is a little bit of symbolism mixed in to it's completely symbolic to it's completely symbolic for an end time coming, or it's some, again, how you have the overall perspective you're going to take on the book of, uh, of Revelation and on end time prophecy is going, to, is going to guide how you take it a little bit. Here's simply put what I think is the most sound. Each of these judgments are real judgments. We've already established we're, we're working from uh, a perspective of, of a literal seven-year tribulation that is yet to come. 
but is coming. We find that uh, especially uh, clear and, and specified out in Daniel. When you come in, these are real judgments of God. And don't forget that. These are trumpet judgments. These are judgments from God upon the earth. This is not chaos of the wicked forces of this is God's judgment upon the world. Proceeds from God. God's in control over it. There's righteousness, holiness, justice behind every last sound of it. And by and large, as we read through them, they should be taken in a literal way with a little bit of symbolism. Here's what I mean. The first, hail, fire mixed with blood. Here's what I mean by literal with a little bit of symbolism. Is it literally raining blood? Probably not. More, more attuned, it's one of two things. The, fire, the, the, the hail and fire that's coming down look like blood, hence a descriptor or the result of what they produce when they hit is blood, meaning they kill. It's still literal, but there's, you know, it's not, because, and I'm trying to be very precise here. Some of you don't care, and you're like, that's great, pastor, whatever, we're good, move on. But there are others who go, oh, you say the Bible's literal, but do you think it's literally going to rain blood? And then it becomes this whole debate, and so I'm just trying to be precise with my language. What it's describing is the trumpet blares, and there is a falling of hail and fire mixed with blood. It was thrown to the earth. And here's the ultimate focus and the result. The focus is that a third of the earth is burned up. A third of the trees are burned up. The green grass is burned up. And a third, a third, now catch with me, a third is not the whole, nor is it even the majority, but it's a massive amount. It's a massive amount to take notice Right? We don't have a third of the world on fire. Right? We take notice when there's a raging wildfire in Colorado or California or most recently Maui. That doesn't come anywhere close to a third of the world burning up. So understand, it's not everything, but also understand it, it's, it's a massive sign. It's a massive statement that is a result of the first, the first trumpet where hail and fire. And by the way, you'll, if, if you're real deep into Bible trivia, you will notice that many of these trumpet judgments are very similar to some of the ten plagues God poured out on Egypt, just in a far greater intensity. Now remember that, because it, I'll make a point from it here in a little bit. The second, uh, something like a great mountain, uh, which was burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. Uh, again, you'll find people, uh, I take it to be something more literal, it's likely some kind of uh, falling mountain, possibly a volcanic blaster, or more likely, if we're probably a meteor, asteroid, something large falling from the heavens that's got a fiery trail behind it. It hits the waters, and here's the result. The result of what it does on the water is a third of the water became blood, either blood of things dead or, or turned red, just means it's unusable for sure. A third of the creatures died. But it's not just simply that there's some, and I want you to catch this, it's not just simply that something goes wrong with the oceans, because it says a third of the ships are destroyed. This is a disaster that has ramifications for both animal and human life. Ships represent two really important things, the ability to travel, and not just that, the ability to trade much of the economy is reliant upon shipping. This is a disaster that has massive effects. I don't know if you saw in, it was a news article yesterday, that in, in one, of, uh, one of the South American countries that has uh, inland freshwater dolphins, they have found, they found a hundred dead dolphins because they are in such a severe drought in that area, the, the, the water temperatures got over a hundred degrees and killed the dolphins. Now, I give you that as a tangible example of a third of all ocean life rising to the top of the sea dead. That's a lot. It's a lot of death. That's a lot of death. The third angel sounds, you've got a great star, Wormwood. Of course, this is one where there's, you know, you could easily see some kind of a meteor asteroid or uh, one of the common speculations is, is this some kind of a atomic or nuclear warhead, something that there is fallout, something that falls down? Certainly, they didn't have missiles in John's day, so how would he describe? It is interesting that it's given a name, especially since our government's name, nuclear warheads. 
Just think that's interesting. Not saying it is, but not saying it's not. But what's the result? The result is that it turns a third of the world's drinking water bitter, and one of the results of that is people die. Then you come to the fourth, and the fourth is the one that it is honestly hard to fully fathom uh, in, in a really literal way, just because of when you try to, how could a third of the moon, a third of the sun, a third of the stars of heaven be dimmed? And all I can tell you is, it's certainly possible, and many of our atheist friends in Hollywood make tons of movies about it, going back all the way to the 80s and the 90s. Probably further back than that, but I can just think of some really prominent ones from that time frame. Here's, here's one of the points of that. Why was the sun, moon, and stars, why were, what, what do they represent? They represent things God created that God said was good. What, what are the purpose of the sun, moon, and stars? To give light to the day, light to the night, to be for the changing of times and seasons for, for humanity. And now, in the judgment of God, those things are being afflicted destroyed, pulled back. You are talking in those first four judgments about natural, uh, natural trauma. I'm trying to think of, a, of the right word. Just earth, natural, nature, trauma and destruction that, that has never been fathomed in the history of humanity. It's never been seen. We've never seen anything like this. (laughs) And then you have, it says, I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, and some will say, is it literally an eagle? Is it an angel? It's likely a description of some kind of an angel since it's speaking, but we also know it could be a literal eagle because God has definitely opened the mouth of animals before for His purposes. But here's what's key. Listen to what the eagle announces. As bad as all that we've just seen is, whoa, 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 what's coming's worse. What's coming's going to put that to shame. So what's coming? Well, let's look. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit, or the key of the abyss, was given to him. Now let's pause for a second. That's all really important. Because in, in, the, third, uh, in the third trumpet, we saw a great star from heaven come down, which is referencing something, but it's clearly referencing a something. Here, it says, I saw a star that had fallen, and it's, that star is called him, which is a someone. So here, understand, when it says, I saw a star from heaven, we, we've shifted from the language of something. Remember your grammar, nouns, person, place, thing. We're not talking about a thing or a place. We're talking about a person. Not only that, but when it says, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, had fallen, uh, in English, we translate that past tense, had fallen. But the way that reads in English, did that star fall to the earth during the trumpet? It's ambiguous to us. In the Greek, it's a perfect tense verb, which describes something that happened long ago in the past, and the results of what happened continue on into the present. So the way it would, would, would what that saying is, that the fifth trumpet blast happened, and I saw a star which had fallen beforehand and is still fallen. And to that star was given the key to the abyss. Now, there is a lot of discussion. Well, who is that star? You will find godly, wise, spirit-filled theologians who say that star is, is an angel. And by angel, what I mean is a supernatural being that is still loyal to God. And you will also find them that will say that is a supernatural being. We would use the generic term demon who is disloyal and fallen from God. And some would go further from that. And, and the language probably is already running through some of your minds What to, to something like Jesus in Luke 18 who said, I saw Satan, who in the Old Testament called the morning star, fall. 
Now you say, Pastor, where do you land? I, I certainly think based on the language, it's at minimum describing a demonic supernatural being, a supernatural being that is in rebellion to God, because to use the language had fallen is used of supernatural beings that are out of alignment with God, not those that are in right alignment. Is it Satan himself? I probably lean that way, but for the sake of, and, and, and we'll see a little bit more why here in a second, but for the sake of being humble and acknowledging I'm not God and don't know everything, nor has God appointed me prophecy master of humanity, uh, I want to just be humble and have open hands. But here's what's key. The key to this, and I'll just for the sake of time, I'll just call him Satan so we're just to be easier for my mind because my mind's a little fried. I've got sympathy pregnancy brain. So the key to the abyss was given to him. He opened the abyss, and by abyss, that's a term that refers to a dark shaft that is measureless. You can't measure its depth. It describes a place of horror, of terror, a place where evil beings reside. He opened the abyss, and smoke went up out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit, meaning that what came out of the pit, it had impact upon the natural world. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon and into the earth. Power was given to them as scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men, only the humans who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We saw that seal back in chapter 7. God seals his elect. And, and they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. Now the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing into battle." They have tails like scorpions and stings in their tails and their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Uh, those terms meaning destruction and destroyer, respectively. The first woe is past. Behold, two are still coming with these things. So let me, I, I, maybe as, as to the point here for the sake of just watching our time and knowing where the minimum spot I want to get us through tonight. So you have Satan is granted the key. He opens up the abyss. Now when you read locusts here and you hear the description, the description does not sound like a description of a locust because it's not a locust in the sense of a physical locust. This is an unleashing Again, I'm going to use general terms. This is an unleashing of demons. We read throughout Scripture, fallen angels, they were chained, and where were they placed? In darkness. Now here's what's interesting. We think of Satan and his might, his cunning, the ultimate deceiver. Do you notice that for Satan to go take that horde out of the abyss, he has to check the key out from God? Because none of the demonic host, as frightening as they are to you and me, not one of them has a shred of power or influence or ability to destroy or damage or destruct that is not allowed by God. Now, you want to pull that practically into our lives? That can raise a lot of questions, and that's not the focus of the text. The focus of the text is written to a group of believers who are living in a world who if they are really in tune to the supernatural reality of Scripture, they are living in a world where they see demonic darkness all around them running and doing things behind the scenes. And they seem powerless to control anything. And yet as they're reading through this book, here's what they're going to discover. There's going to be a point where it gets worse. And whether it's the way it is in their day, the way it is in our day, or the way it is when Satan unleashes all of the, the locusts out of the abyss, there is still not a single thing that the demonic can do 
outside of the might and power of God Almighty, which means for you and I as a believer, I should not fear them in terror. Instead, in awe and wonder in the fear of God, I should just love and follow God who will not allow them to touch a shred of me for destroying me. I may get touched. He may allow them to tempt me. He may allow them to bring some oppression. Look at Job's life. But by the grace of God and the power of God, they cannot destroy me whatsoever. And in this instance, they are released upon humanity. And notice, those, those locusts, they're given restraints. You can touch these people. You can't touch these people. These people being the followers of God. They're given restraints. You can touch these people, but you can't touch this part of nature. They're given restraints. You can only do it for five months. Now, what are they going to do? It says they are going, they are going to afflict, they are going to afflict people like scorpions. They're going to bring torment whether it be physical or spiritual, or and honestly, it's, it's likely a, a combo of both, they are going to bring torment to lost human beings that is so miserable that instead of doing what every human has spent all of their life doing, running from death, humans are going to run to death, and they won't be able to find it. They're going to try to kill themselves, and it won't work. They're going to long for death, and it won't happen. Instead, they will be stuck in the misery of affliction that comes upon them from the forces of spiritual darkness. The appearance, the, the descriptions that are there, there are some who would gloss past that and tell you it's just a description. There's some who... Uh, uh, who would go in and, and look at it and say the appearance of crowns would, would give the fact that there is a level of authority and power. Faces, there's a level of intelligence, they, uh, intelligence of cunning, of shrewdness, hair of women, there's, there's what they're going to offer is going to seem enticing, seductive, teeth like lions, there's going to be power and fierceness in their bite, breastplates like iron, they won't be able to be defeated except but by a by a greater supernatural power, wings like the sound of chariots. They're, they're, what they bring is, is, is intimidating, it's frightening, it's terrifying. And like scorpions in their stings, they will bring brutal pain to lost humanity such that they wish to die. Now jump ahead, look at this verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now stop real briefly. The sixth angel, he gets his trumpet, he blows it, but he's given a command that at his trumpet's blare, the four angels, there's four beings who are bound under the, the, the Euphrates River. Now, again, we're getting a little crazy here, and I can't answer every one of your questions, not because I'm stupid. I just am not going to go say, thus saith the Lord, on something I'm going to have to stand before him and give an account. And I would much rather you go, well, Pastor, why can't you answer my question? Then Jesus go, Wes, why'd you say something stupid? Just being honest. There is debate. Are these angels, again, beings, supernatural beings loyal to God, or are these. Is it using the term angel, but, but referring to, you're going to find godly people on both sides of that argument. Here's where I would land and tell you. I know of no place in Scripture where angels who are walking in right relationship with God are bound. The only things that get bound are things in rebellion to God. So it seems to be that out of, there, there are four fallen angels who are bound, and notice they have been bound for a specific moment, place, and time. God is in such control down to the itty-bitty, nitty-gritty details. And when they are released, you saw what it says, when they are released, they will kill a third of humanity. And it speaks, how's that going to happen? The number of the armies of the horsemen was two million. I, I heard the number of them, and this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire, 
and of uh, hyacinth and of brimstone, which would be a red, a deep blue, and a sulfur yellow. On the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. Out of their mouth proceeded fire, smoke, and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which proceeded from their mouth. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. He says, so the four angels who are bound, they're released... To, to kill a third of humanity. And here's how they're going to do it. There is a demonically empowered, and by empowered, I don't mean to say like there's two million demons. What I mean to say is we know that, we know Paul tells us our real battle is not against flesh and blood. Now we know flesh and blood that would like to throw us in prison, that would like to fire us from our jobs, that would like to call us bigots and all sorts of things. We know flesh and blood that hates us just because we are by nature enemies of flesh and blood if we're in Christ. But we know beyond that, our battle's not against flesh and blood. Our battle's against the spiritual forces of darkness who we've seen in Scripture, some of whom can possess flesh and blood, some of whom certainly are influencing and leading culture and, and, and moving culture in ways that are, that are ungodly. So when we say that there's this army, it's not for me to try to like, you know, make up, pick, pick your movie with some weird demonic, we'll look at... We're not talking about like the ghost army out of Lord of the Rings, even though they're good guys kind of in Lord of the Rings. We're talking about an army that's massive. That has a power of darkness behind it. Now, there are some who will gloss over the description of this army and go, it's just a description. There are some who will read into every last dot and comma and tell you exactly which nation and which country this army's coming from and how it's going to be. And I'll just tell you in the middle there, all of those descriptions mean something, but we need to be careful to not go, give you an instance, oh, it's red, yellow, and blue. Russia and China are getting together and they're going to have an army. That's great, unless God doesn't come for another hundred years and Russia and China aren't countries then. And then we look kind of goofy. So we, here's the reality. Those things... Is there, is there symbolism there? Yes, but don't miss the greater point that the, 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 what this army produces, this army produces plagues on the earth described, described as fire, smoke, and brimstone. And, and as a result of what comes out of this army, a third of humanity is killed. Now, if we understand this to be sequential after the seal judgments, let's go back for a second, because one of the seal judgments, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, kills a fourth of humanity. So we've already seen a fourth of humanity die. Now we're seeing out of that, out of that so there's eight, uh, eight billion people in the world right now. That means two billion people die. That leaves us with six. This is great numbers for our math. If a third of that, another two, so it means now we're down, now we're down to four billion people. Half the world has died as a result of the judgment of God. And interestingly enough, have you catched the, catch, that's horrible grammar, caught, I caught my horrible grammar, uh, my father would be both ashamed and proud, um, have you caught the, the progress? The first four judgments bring destruction and render powerless physical creation. The next two judgments allow a level of power and might and destruction to the forces of darkness they have never been allowed to have and they willed it to bring absolute pain and destruction and devastation to humanity. The reason I specify that, listen to what Paul says in Romans before we come to the final verse here. I promise we'll be done by seven, but I can't guarantee 655 because I want to make the final point so that we don't leave this on a big question mark, especially if I'm not going to be here next week and you got to wait uh, a month to find out what happens. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made. So no one is without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man." and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that the bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. What does that tell you about humankind? It said God created this whole universe, and it is good. And in this universe, it should be evident to a human, there are aspects of God's character that should be automatically noticeable to a human being to go, God is God. But in our brokenness and unrighteousness, we are actively, as a choice of our own, every human being, suppressing that knowledge so that instead of looking at creation and being pointed to the worship of God, we worship creation. Now, not only that, we take creation, we know the Old Testament, we take creation, gold, silver, wood, and what do we do? We fashion idols. And God makes all sorts of fun of idols in the prophets of the Old Testament. You're going to worship that creature that you created? The irony of that? But then Paul will go a step further when you get into, uh, I believe, 1 Corinthians, and he talks about that behind every idol is a demonic presence. Now, here's why I give you all of that background, because God's judgment has now been poured out and demonstrated that all of creation is powerless before its creator. Not only that, God has unleashed the demonic whom so much of this world worships, and the demonic didn't bring blessing to humanity, it brought absolute devastation to humanity. Now, look with me, Revelation 9.20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver, of brass, of stone, and of wood, which can neither hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. God, through these trumpet judgments, is announcing His holy and righteous and just person to all of the world in a way that you would think would have the the captive attention of every human being crying out, God help me. Those who worship nature will die by nature. Those who worship the demonic will either wish for death and not find it at the hand of the demonic or be killed by the demonic. And yet, the lostness of humanity is such that not a soul not one single person as a result of all of as a result of the third of the greenery of the world being obliterated a third of the oceans and sea life and usability obliterated a third of the ship travel and trade obliterated a third of the lights of the heavens obliterated half of humanity dead not a soul will turn to Jesus Christ in repentance as a result So what we need to understand then, two real simple things. I mean, there's a lot of things we need to understand. Let me give two simple. It is a miracle that any one of us has ever turned to faith in Jesus. And I know in theological circles, stuff like this, we we can get, forget all that. Here's the simple point. You and I should never get beyond a mind-blowing thankfulness that somehow, some way, the veil of the enemy was obliterated in our life and we cried out, Jesus, save me, and he did. 
that wonder should never cease in our lives because it is a miracle. And, and, and let me tell you this, it is, here's what that also means. It means it is a miracle when, when the individual who is out here completely and totally addicted to alcohol and meth and is at a grand theft auto and murdered somebody comes to faith in Christ, it is equally a miracle when a five-year-old boy or girl comes to faith in Christ out of a Christian home. Both are a miracle because both are fully depraved. So don't ever question the testimony God has given you. It is powerful and amazing because it is the testimony of an absolute miracle unparalleled in all creation, Jesus Christ saving a sinner. Two, understand, are there ways we can present the gospel that turn people off to Jesus? Yes. We can present the gospel in such a way that it is a sham of a reflection of Jesus Christ, and a person says, I don't want what you're selling. Yes. That's possible, both as an individual and as a church. But there is a danger, I fear, because so much of our life culturally in America is very much influenced by, by what happened in the Industrial Revolution. And this is my term, so I think the only thing I might ever be able to, to motivate myself to do a PhD in, but I think one of the greatest dangers that the enemy threw at the church happened 150 years ago when we think things were great. And it's what I call the businessification of the American church, where we take our cues for how to do ministry and how to think through things like we do in the business world. So here's what I mean. In the business world, if you have a product and you want to sell it, you've got to market it. How do you know if you're marketing good or bad? By, by numbers. How many people are buying your product? And if they're not buying it, then we need to go back and figure out how to market it better. How does that come to us? Well, we're not seeing enough people get saved. We need to figure out how to market it better. Well, maybe, maybe we're being jerks. It would be helpful to not be a jerk when, sell, uh, uh, when sharing the gospel. Case in point, it does say that we should give an answer for our hope with all gentleness. At the same time, we are living in a world where you can make the most spirit-filled, God-ordained, God-anointed, perfect articulation of the gospel. And if humanity in our core is really that depraved and lost, there's just going to be some people that don't respond, and it's not because you or the church did it wrong. And if we're not careful, we will go down this rabbit hole in the name of, and it's good, we want to, listen, I want to, see, I want to see our church grow, not because we're stealing from other churches. It would be great to see our church grow because lost men and women are coming to faith in Christ. That's the prayer. That's the hope. Now, certainly, if God brings people, that's great. But, but y'all get what I'm saying. But we have to be careful. You can cross a fine line that is a lie of the enemy. Well, if I share the gospel and call this thing sin, mm, that might cause someone to not like Jesus, so we just won't mention our stance on that so they'll come to Jesus. Well, the reality is Jesus loves to meet the adulterous woman on the dirt of the ground. And the reality is also Jesus was happy to let the rich young ruler walk away because he wasn't willing to take Jesus on Jesus' terms. And we have to walk a fine line. Church family, our heart and mission is to be ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. We'll see that more in the weeks to come here with, with the idea of witness. But we need to be clear. Our call is to know Jesus rightly and truly, to love him with all of our heart, and to follow him faithfully at his word, which means we want to see people come to faith in Christ we're going to share the gospel. We should remove any stumbling block that comes from us. It's one of my greatest prayers anytime I teach or preach. Lord, keep me from saying something dumb. I'm fine if somebody doesn't like me because they, doesn't, they don't like the truth you spoke through me. 
but I don't want somebody to be turned off from you because I just said something dumb. I don't want to be a stumbling block. That's a healthy attitude. But let's also be clear, our call is not to remove the stumbling block. Jesus is a stumbling block. And so both sides, we should be amazed and treasure and delight. Jesus saved me. And at the same time, we should take heart. Let's be bold and faithful in our witness for the Lord, but let's also never be discouraged or begin to change the message because we have this idea that if we just shared the gospel right, the whole world would come to faith in Christ. Half the world's going to get obliterated and still no one's going to want to come to Christ. And we're going to see next week, God's going to send two really crazy witnesses that'll make it clear to the whole world what's happening And the whole world not only won't repent, but when they can kill them, they'll celebrate it as a worldwide holiday. Because that is the true depths of the depravity of our hearts. And how does that not, that kind of rebellion against God, how does that not just make it incredible? For God so loves the world that He gave His one and only unique Son. Not because we loved Him, but He loved us. And he sent that one and only unique son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, to take what is hostile against God and to make peace between two warring parties. And we now have peace in Christ Jesus through the justification that is in Christ. Oh, that's good news. Anyways, all right, 703. I broke my promise. I got to let's go. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for our church family. Thank you for the joy that the only reason we're church family is because you've saved us. And may we as a church never grow beyond the amazement. Lord, I think as I'm thinking back to the weeks past as we've walked through Revelation, just the joy of that multitude to say salvation belongs to our God. Jesus, salvation belongs to you. Thank you. And may you fashion in us and may you evaluate us and may you find us a church who will give anything you ask because we are constrained by your love for us and we are driven in response to love you with everything. We will not capitulate on truth. But whatever we got to do to reach our neighbor, next door to down the street, Lord, would you find us just faithful to follow you where you lead out of love for you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.